the uh, happy Father's Day to a few dads and grandfathers with us this morning. Briefly, before I ask you to open your Bible, I'm going to acknowledge a couple of you. I have the Father's Day gifts, Keith, uh, up here. Fell to me this year. So we're going to give the first gift, acknowledge the father in the room who has... uh, been married 60 years in three days. Is there anyone like that? (laughs) How about that? All right, our next one, another random category, the father whose uh, job title is facilities manager and began this summer. Happy Father's Day. Wow, who knew? (laughs) All right, let's open our Bibles to Psalm 18 this morning. Uh, We've been studying Psalms 13 through 24. Uh, This is the first one we've had to break in half because of its length, and I'll explain that in just a minute. But... uh, Psalm 18, I'm not going to read uh, all the 24 verses we'll be looking at today, but I will read 1 through 3 as we begin, and we'll see the verses as we uh, study them in their context as I work through the sermon. So Psalm 18, and just 1 through 3 as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The word of God is inerrant and authoritative word, and let's ask for his help as we look into these verses this morning. Father, I pray Uh, that you would give us strength. We acknowledge our weakness as we come before you. Uh, In our own understanding, we cannot grasp uh, what you would say to us. We do want to hear your voice clearly through Psalm 18. And so give us seeing eyes and hearing ears as we look into your word. Strengthen me, Father, my throat and my mind as I preach your word and pray that you'd give me uh, clarity in, in my thoughts and my speech, Lord, I pray that your word would change and transform us. Lord, that we would not leave the same people we were when we entered. Uh, draw us to yourself and your son Jesus through the power of your spirit and your word. This morning, Father, we pray this through Christ. Amen. Well, the largest freestanding rock in the world is reported to be Uh, This one, uh, Peña de Bernal Natural Monument, sorry for that horrible uh, accent, but this massive stone is in uh, uh, a north-central Mexican state. Uh, This monument reaches a height of 1,421 feet. Of course, there are many of these monoliths throughout the world. We can even uh, think of Stone Mountain as one in our own backyard, 
then there's uh, this one uh, located in Colombia, El Peñón de Guatape. Again, I apologize for my Spanish. But this one is roughly half, uh, less than half as high as the last one. This is only 650 feet high. But then finally, there's uh, the cleverly titled monument called Giant Rock. <laughs> Giant Rock. Need some marketing to get to work on that stone there. This is uh, in Landers, California. And it's reported to be the largest freestanding boulder in the world. It's as high as a seven-story building and covering 5,800 square feet of ground. Now, perhaps you can't see it where you're seated, but here in the shadow, down here in the corner, there are two people uh, with their arms raised. And so you get a grasp of the size of this massive, massive stone. But these... They're nothing. They're mere pebbles compared to the rock we'll be looking at this morning. And the rock I'm talking about and referring to is our God. A rock of massive, massive proportions. And David, we'll see in Psalm 18, is completely captivated by this rock. Uh, the longest psalm we've seen so far in uh, our study this summer was Psalm 17 last week, and that was 15 verses. Uh, and then a couple years ago when we looked at Psalms 1 through 12, we saw Psalm 9, which is, I believe, 20. But to describe the Lord our rock, our rock David goes on extravagantly for 50 verses, making Psalm 18 the third longest psalm and the entire book of psalms. Uh, it is uh, 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 topped only by Psalm 78 uh, written by Asaph and Psalm 119 that you're familiar with uh, but that one's not attributed to David either. This could be David's longest psalm. And what does David think about this rock? How does David consider uh, the Lord in his uh, massiveness and sturdiness. He sums up his opinion of the rock with these words in verse 3 where he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised. This God, this rock deserves our highest worship and adoration. 50 verses worth in this case. And the question we want to occupy ourselves with the question we want to begin answering this morning is why is this rock worthy to be praised? Why does he merit 50 verses? Of course, he merits much more than that as, as we see, but by David in this psalm, why does he deserve 50 verses? And why should we give ourselves to the study of David's description of this rock? Uh, this is what we'll find out as we examine the first half of Psalm 18, verses 1 through 24. Uh, Pastor Brian will be preaching for us next Lord's Day morning, and we'll pick up the second half of Psalm 18, verses 25 through 50 in the week after that. Why is the Lord worthy to be praised? 
Why should we praise the Lord our rock? Well, we see the answer to this question as, as we work our way through the three parts of Psalm 18, the first half of Psalm 18, rather. We'll see the answer as we work our way to the three parts of this half. First, we'll encounter David's delight in the rock in verses 1 through 3. And then second, we'll see David's deliverance by the rock in verses 4 through 16. And then finally, this morning, we'll hear David's declaration about the rock uh, in 17 through 24. So let's begin with this first part of uh, Psalm 18. Uh, in the first part of Psalm 18, we see his delight in the rock. David praises the Lord who's faithfully protected and strengthened him throughout his life. And I want to point out four things to you about his delight. Uh, first, I want you to see the setting of this psalm. Uh, I want you to understand the circumstances surrounding uh, Psalm 18, uh, circumstances behind its composition. And so let's begin this morning, not with verse 1, but in that part right above verse 1, uh, between the number 18 and verse 1, uh, this is called the uh, heading, some say. The technical term is superscription. But look at these words that we often just skip over. In this case, they're, they're very helpful and understand when this was written in his life. Look at what it says to the choir master. A psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, and we'll uh, go on in just a minute. But what this tells us significantly is that David had been delivered from all his enemies, first and foremost, and, and named clearly here as King Saul. Uh, the account of David and Saul and their conflict occupies half of 1 Samuel. The second half of that entire book is given up with with this uh, horrendous uh, conflict between David and Saul, David spent significant energy fleeing from and avoiding King Saul. Many of our psalms were written out of that, uh, that difficulty, that trial that David uh, was in. Foreign countries also made up some of his enemies, as you might imagine. And uh, 2 Samuel 8 uh, includes a list of those, Moab, the, the countries that surrounded the nation of Israel, the Philistines, of course, Syrians, Ammonites. And then lastly, one of David's worst enemies arose from his very own household. And this, is, this of course, is Absalom, uh, his son. He, too, was defeated. But, but now David's enemies are defeated. He's near the end of his life. And and we know this from the book of 2 Samuel because the same words are included in 2 Samuel almost at the very end of the book. These, these could be very nearly David's last words that he wrote uh, near the end of his life, finally having defeated his, his enemies. And now he has time to write at length and write an extended thanksgiving to what God has done in his life. Um, 
Dr. Alan Ross comments, Psalm 18 is a long, detailed thanksgiving for the Lord's great acts of, of deliverance. It is the kind of thanksgiving one would expect from someone looking back over a lifetime of experience. There, there's, there's uh, uh, like Dr. Ross said, my former seminary professor, there's, there's a lot of years piled into this psalm, uh, a lot of experience, uh, much gray hair, I'm sure, that uh, is behind these words. So this is the setting of Psalm 18. Very important for us to see. The second thing I want you to notice about his delight is the affection David expresses for the Lord. Now let's look at verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Uh, the word that David uses here for love uh, ex um, is, is an unusual Choice. It's an uncommon term, uh, an impulsive and emotional term, according to one scholar. This word is often used to describe the Lord's uh, compassion and affection that he has for his people. But here David has flipped this word around and he uses it to describe the deep affection and compassion and feeling that he has for the Lord. Um, David's love is, is not a cool, intellectual love. The kind of love, unfortunately, many Reformed churches have for their Lord. This cool, scholarly thing. David's love for the Lord throbs with emotion and feeling. He has a, a passionate love for God. This is the kind of love Jesus describes in Matthew 12 where Jesus says these words, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. It's, it's amazing. Have you noticed how someone's face will light up when they talk about something or someone they love? It, it's amazing how animated people can become when you bring up the subject of college football. Insert your team name here. <laughs> or music. Or food. Or some kind of outdoor activity, hunting or whatever. Or their children or their pets or their jobs. They can, uh, they can talk about this at length in, in a very animated way. Oh, let me tell you what I did last night. We tried the new, this new restaurant. It was fantastic. Oh, the steaks. Actually, I ate at Mrs. Murphy's last night. <laughs> but yet the same people when it comes to the Lord, they can discuss him without hardly even raising an eyebrow. But that's what passes in the church in America for devotion to the Lord. That's what we many consider. Well, that's okay. That's the best I can do, really. And I'm not suggesting that we try to work ourselves up in some kind of false sentimentality. But that's not the kind of love David had for the Lord throbbing and passionate love. What is behind 
these feelings? What led to this uh, emotional outburst, you, we can even call it? What's driving his passionate love for the Lord? It's because of all that the Lord has been for David. And we'll see this as we continue and we look next at uh, the description. Note the way David describes the Lord as he continues. Look at all the different terms that David uses to describe the Lord. I believe there's nine or so, and many of them overlap in meaning. But again, notice verse 1. We'll read further. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock my, and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Uh, uh, two of these metaphors refer to power and might and strength. The first is actually my strength in verse 1, meaning that the Lord is the one who gives him strength. Uh, the one who enables him to fight off his enemies. And the second metaphor used for power and strength uh, comes at the end of verse 2, the horn of my salvation. That's a common reference uh, in the Old Testament, a metaphor for power and strength. It's a reference to an animal horn. Uh, it's uh, uh, just as an animal horn like this one uh, would uh, allow it to fend off predators. And competitors, so the Lord gives David power to fend off his enemies. He is, he is the horn of my salvation. He is the power that saves me. The rest of the metaphors refer to safety and protection that, that the Lord provides. Many of them are geographical locations. In, in verse 2, uh, David says, the Lord is my rock. Uh, uh, and I'll come back to that one in, in, a, in a moment. And, and then next, the Lord is my fortress or my strong fortress. This Hebrew term is Metsuda, from which we get the, the name Masada, that ancient Jewish fortress, uh, the fortification in the south of Israel. I don't want to mislead you. David didn't spend any time here. Um, but this illustrates what he means by this word. The Lord is a place of safety and protection, high and out of reach from the enemy. And then he says refuge and stronghold here uh, in the next phrases. And those are basically synonyms uh, in, in, uh, to um, the word fortress. Uh, they, they both refer to high and un unassailable hiding places. He, he mentions a shield in these verses, meaning that God is the one who, who protects his people the way a soldier would uh, use his shield to guard his body. But the metaphor he favors throughout this psalm is rock. He calls the Lord rock four times. And this term could refer to either a rocky crag or a large boulder like giant rock. It is definitely not a reference to uh, the size of a rock you could pick up with your hand. Nothing in your garden uh, it would be what this word refers to. It's something, something huge, something large enough to hide behind, something you could take refuge behind. These boulders not only provided protection, they also provided shade. 
as you noticed in giant rock, uh, a large portion of the ground beneath it was in shade. Uh, and, and in the desert lands of the Bible, the shady side of a boulder uh, would often be where a small oasis would form, a, a small pool of water collected. And, and people traveling through the those, those desert regions could find uh, shade behind the rock and could be sustained by that little oasis that was in the shade of the rock. Isaiah talks about this. He, he describes the Lord as the shadow of a rock in a weary land. And this is what David has in mind. And not only that, but rock provides sure footing beneath your feet, as David will uh, mention later on in the psalm. But what I want you to notice about these metaphors, these uh, figures of speech, is that they seem to come pouring out of David, uh, just spilling out of his pen, if you would, although he's not writing with a pen, of course. You get the feeling that he can't write fast enough. He, it's almost if he's writing in a frenzy of creativity. Uh, I need to get this down, attempting to, to get on paper all that, all that God has been for him as he thinks back. And one pastor suggests we should stress the word and, reading verses 1 and 2. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Uh, he, he says as David piles up his praises in his description of Yahweh, if, it's as if he's saying to us, isn't this always the way it is? Yahweh is so much more than you think or uh, than you at first realize or can express. And once you grasp David's thinking, his unashamed, I love you, Yahweh, at the beginning, no, is no longer a mystery. And just uh, glance down with me to verse 31, if you would, in your copy of the word. And look at those words there where he says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Where else will you find stability and safety and protection like this? There's nowhere. It's a rhetorical question. There's no place where you can find that kind of stability. And again, Isaiah uses very similar words. And he asks... Uh, the question in this form, is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. What's your rock? What's your rock? Is it your job? Many of you have lived long enough to know that your job can't be your rock. Is it financial stability? And again, you know, uh, many of you, that financial stability comes and goes at times. Is it your children? Is it food? You know, anything like that could be a good thing. 
and, a, and, and they are good gifts of God, but we often look to get more of them than we should. These things, they're good things, and they can, be, they can come to replace the Lord in our thinking. But they're not rocks. Those are stones, pebbles. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. And this is how he thinks of the Lord. My rock. And from this description of, of God as his rock and these other related terms, he goes on in these opening three verses to provide us with a summary of, of his life. This is kind of like a, a little capsule of his his career, uh, his, his life as a follower of Yahweh, um, thinking back on the Lord's deliverances and as he reflects on all that the Lord has been for him, he, he summarizes his life with the words of verse 3, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. This is not just one uh, experience he's referring to in verse 3. This, this, is, a, this is a category over his whole life. Uh, these, these summarize every tight spot he's ever been in. Uh, you could say, whenever I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, I'm saved from my enemies. The Lord has delivered me through them all. He has not let me down. This is much like what Paul said to Timothy. As Paul wrote the book of 2 Timothy, he too was nearing the end of his life. And he wrote these words to Timothy, his young apprentice. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This is the, the sentiment of verse 3. Whenever I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, I'm saved from my enemies. So he sums up his delight with this summary that essentially encapsulates his entire life uh, uh, summarizes everything he's encountered. Whenever I've called upon him, I'm saved. Well, now David's going to go from this opening three verses where he expresses his delight in the Lord. And he's going to become far more specific in the verses that follow because next he's going to describe the actual deliverance that God brought to him. He's going to uh, describe to us what they were like. Uh, close, he's close to death, we'll see. And he cries out the Lord, to the Lord who supernaturally intervenes to save him. Uh, two things I want to show you about his deliverance. And the first is we hear the cry for rescue. Uh, look at verse 4 in your Bible. These very... Uh, dramatic words. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. 
uh, when David, uh, uh, speaking to Jonathan, his friend and mentor, Jonathan, of course, was much older than David was. And speaking to Jonathan, David says this, as he's in the midst of some of this stuff, very simply and very succinctly says, truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death, very matter-of-factly. And now here we find much more poetic expressions of that same truth. David is on the knife's edge. He is, he is near death. And, and, and not how, how inescapable and inevitable death seems to him. Uh, he says it's like cords, like a rope is tied around him, a cord pulling him inevitably toward the grave. It feels like a raging current, a current he can't swim against, a flash flood that's sweeping him away and pulling him under. It feels like death is snapping at his heels, hunting him down, driving him towards a hunter's trap. Death has him locked in its sights, and for all intents and purposes, it's just a matter of time before he goes under. And you might be asking yourself, when did this happen in the life of David? Again, I don't believe he's describing just one event here. David had to flee from death on several occasions. It seems like somebody was always on his heels. I believe uh, verse 4 and 5 are a composite of events that took place throughout his life. This distress, these straits, these tight spots, in these David cried to the Lord. As verse 6 says, in my distress, distress means in a narrow, confined place. Uh, pressure, in my pressure, in my stress, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. This is his cry for rescue. Uh, his his uh, plea to the Lord, um, much like we've seen in previous Psalms, as David is near death. Well, then we go on from the cry to the manner of rescue. And David goes on to, to say how the Lord saved him. He's going to use references drawn from uh, Israel's previous history. Uh, they might sound, not sound familiar. Um, I'll try to point, point out what he's referring to. But he's going to go on to explain now how the Lord delivered him. How he rescued him. And, and David names Six ways. Again, many of these could overlap and, and refer to more to one thing. You'll see what I mean as we go on. The Lord rescued him like at Sinai. The Lord rescued David in a way similar to the way he appeared at Mount Sinai. Verse 7 says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. This was how the Lord appeared to Sinai. 
in Exodus 19, you could read about uh, how God appeared there, but it says there in Exodus 19, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so at some point in his life, since this refers to an actual historical event, something like this took place where the Lord intervened uh, similar to how he appeared at Sinai. He goes on, and secondly, he says, he delivered me like he did, like he appeared. Come on now. Spencer, help me out. It won't go. Oh, not that many. Well, <laughs> all right, thank you. Like he did at Sodom. Like he did at Sodom. And verse 8 describes this smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. It sounds like a, a volcano. And Genesis 19 describes um, uh, that uh, the Lord's appearance. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. One of his rescues was like this. It was also like the Lord appeared in the wilderness to Israel. God rescued David in a similar way. Verse 9 says he bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness, uh, thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darknesses covering his canopy around him. Thick clouds, dark with water. Psalm 68 describes something very similar, which recounts how God uh, appeared to Israel in the wilderness wanderings. Psalm 68 says this, O oh God, when you went out before uh, your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. There's similarity between the wilderness and one of David's rescues. And he goes on and he gives, gives us a, a, a fourth. Uh, he says the Lord rescued and intervened like he did during the conquest of Canaan. Verse 12, out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And then in Joshua chapter 10, we read <clears throat> these words. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, uh, the Lord threw down large, hail, large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. There is similarity to his deliverance in the, in the, the deliverance during the conquest. He goes on, fifthly, it, it was like also the Red Sea. It, it's like the way the Lord appeared at the Red Sea crossing. And this is in verse 14. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them, Pharaoh's army. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Uh, then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. Think of that open spot that Israel walked through. It's your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, nostrils being the organ that displays anger in, that, in the ancient world. 
This is what Psalm 77 says. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled, the clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. At, at one point in his life, uh, his rescue was similar to the Red Sea crossing. When was that? I don't know. But since this is a historical event he's referring back to, we, take, we assume that he's referring to an actual historical event in his life as well. One left. And now, now the tone changes completely. It's been the God of thunder who's shown up to rescue David. The God of lightning. The God of, of hailstone. But how, how the Lord delivered him this time was completely different. He delivered him in a way that he, like he delivered Moses. David's rescue was similar to the way the Lord rescued Moses. And this is in verse 16. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. Now that might not be obvious. It's probably not. Moses' rescue is not as clear here. But the phrase, he drew me out, is the exact phrase lifted from the account of how Moses was rescued in Exodus chapter 2, which says, when the child grew older, she, that's Moses' real mother, brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. We know the Lord was at work through the daughter of Pharaoh to deliver Moses from death. But there is something different about this last way that David was delivered. Again, it's, it's different from the five before this. Uh, uh, in the first five ways, we see the enormous and supernatural display of God's power, but here it's extremely personal. And so that phrase, he sent from on high, could be translated, he reached out from on high. And then it says, he took me, he drew me out. It's as though God himself has arisen from his throne in heaven and reached down to personally take hold of David and snatch him out of the hands of his enemies. Uh, Derek Kidner, a Bible scholar, says this, after the enormous scale of the theophany, the close personal concern of this climax is striking. What's the significance of this? Do you see that this is the very thing that the Lord promises to you and me? This type of rescue and deliverance 
uh, many of you appreciate and, and hold as precious uh, Saul, uh, Isaiah 41.10, as, as I do as well. Um, and the words of Psalm 41, I'll remind them of you, remind, the, remind you of them. Um, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. Dismayed means to, to lose your moral courage, to become unhinged. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The underlined phrase, uphold you, could say, I will grasp you, or I will lay hold of you. Just as God laid hold of David, as, as though the picture is, is as if he stood from his throne, and reached down, and like Moses was drawn out of the water, so the Lord snatches David from his enemies. And this is a similar idea. I will grasp you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. So uh, an older pastor named Reverend Temple recounted this story to a young man who was about to leave for seminary and train for the ministry. And Reverend Temple shared this story with the young man. And he said, when my son was small, we often walked together out through the fields and neighboring pasture behind, uh, behind our house. At first, the little fellow would hold on to my little finger, but he found that when he stepped into a hoof print or stumbled over something, his grip would fail, and down he'd go in the dust or snow. Not giving it much thought in my mind on other matters, I'd stop, and he'd get up, brush himself off, and grab my little finger again, gripping a little harder this time. Needless to say, this occurred frequently. Until one day as he was brushing himself off, he looked at me and said, Daddy, I replied, yes, son, what is it? He said, I think if you would hold my hand, I wouldn't fall. Pastor then, Pastor Temple turned to the young man and said, you know, he still stumbled many times after that, but he never hit the ground. Now as you walk with God, don't try to hold on to him. Let him hold on to you. You may stumble, but he'll never let you fall. This is what the Lord promises to you and I. I will grasp hold of you with my righteous right hand, just as he did to David, just as he did to Moses. This is how the Lord rescued David. It was in a manner like these Old Testament events. Uh, he supernaturally intervened in David's life in, in ways that were similar to Israel's past. Well, this is what we see in the second part of Psalm 18. There's a third part I want to show you this morning. And we go from his delight to his deliverance. And thirdly, we see his declaration. And here David is going to declare why the Lord delivered him. Why he supernaturally intervened. 
why he rescued him from his enemies. And of course you'd quit to say because he prayed and cried out, yes, absolutely, that would be, that would be a reason. But he, he names three different reasons here. And the first reason that David says the Lord delivered him was because of his, David's own weakness. Uh, in verse 17, David says, He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. This is not just a reference to David's physical enemies on the battlefield. It might also include a reference to David's spiritual enemies. And again, Dr. Ross comments here, they no doubt are national foes who were defeated on the battlefield, but the expression may also include forces of darkness driving the enemies. These spiritual enemies, as they were in David's conflict, are always present and working in our conflicts too. Paul reveals this in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. David uh, was rescued by the Lord because of his profound weakness. I, I want to pause and encourage you as I try to see again. The Lord is not put off by your weakness. The Lord delights to help weak and needy people. It's common throughout the Bible. It's just stop trying to be so strong. Stop trying to, to muscle up to the plate. Uh, try, stop trying to hit a home run every time you're at bat, metaphorically speaking. God delights to show His strength to weak and needy people like you and I. And, and so the Lord delivers David because of, of David's admitted weakness in the face of his enemies. Do you, do you ever think when you, you face a challenge, Lord, I simply am not strong enough for this. I, I simply can't do it. You must work. The Lord delights to help believers who admit their weakness to Him. David goes on, not only does, uh, does the Lord deliver him because of his weakness, because of uh, his delight, not, not David's delight in, in the Lord. This time it's the other way, but it's the Lord's delight in David. Uh, we saw in verse 1 how David delighted in the Lord, but here in verse 18 we see that it's the other way around now. Look at 18 and it says, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The term delight is, is not a mystery. It means pretty much what it sounds like, to, to, to take a high degree of pleasure in something. And, and as difficult as that is for you to wrap your mind around, 
I assure you, the Lord takes delight in those who are his. The Lord is pleased with the saints, uh, with those who've trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. We see this in Psalm 35. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And in Psalm 119, the same thought occurs for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Friend, as hard as it might be for you to grasp this, as lowly and miserable as you perceive yourself to be, the clear fact of Scripture is that the Lord delights in you if you're his. He takes pleasure in you if you're his. Well, if that weren't enough, not only does the Lord delight in David, and that's the second reason that the Lord delivered him, David goes on with a third declaration and something that's even far bolder than the first two. Uh, third, David declares that he was delivered because of his faithfulness. Look at verse 20 with me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. It's quite a, quite a bold thing to say. It's repeated in verse 20. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. At first glance, as you hear those words, it might sound like something arrogant David said on, on his part. Quite similar to what we saw last Sunday, frankly, in Psalm 17, back in verse 3, David said, You've tried my heart, you've visited me by night, you've tested me, and, and you will find nothing. Uh, he refers to himself uh, as one who's held fast to the Lord's word and, and is blameless uh, before the Lord. And, and this is much like what we read last Sunday. But we observed David wasn't declaring his sinlessness, but only his faithfulness to the Lord. He admitted he was born in sin. He admitted that no one living is righteous before the Lord, Psalm 143.3. And here we have basically a repeat of the truth we saw last week. He's not declaring sinlessness, but his faithfulness. Again, Dr. Ross says these verses provide the explanation for the Lord's supernatural deliverance. It is the faithfulness of the Lord to those who are faithful to Him. He goes on to name two specific areas in which he was faithful. He was faithful uh, first to the Word of God. He was faithful to the Word of God. And we see this in verse 21. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. Note where God's word is in position to David. Verse 22 there says that, that uh, his rules were before him, as if they were leading the way. He kept the word in front of him. He kept the word as, as the focus of his intention, attention. He, his commands, 
were always at the front of his mind. He let the word lead him. He let the word, uh, God's law, guide him. Uh, another translation really brings this idea out, saying, Indeed, I let all his ordinances guide me and have not disregarded his statutes. He, he's been faithful to the word. It's been in front of him the whole time. And then he's been faithful, secondly, here. This is very important. Whoa, where'd it go? To confess sin. To confess his sin to the Lord. And so verse 23, we read this. I was blameless. Again, daring words. Unless all you mean by that is faithful. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from my guilt. Uh, blameless uh, refers to being free from sin or, or to be forgiven from sin. And, and David says here that he has kept himself from acting wickedly or has dealt with his sin when it was brought to light. And so I know many of you are wondering, have a, have a name in the back of your mind and are trying to figure out how this fits in here. And the name, of course, is Bathsheba. Pastor Rob, what about Bathsheba? Well, that event would, would be included in this statement because that event certainly took place before David wrote these words. Because he wrote this when he was at rest from his enemies, when the Lord had delivered him from his enemies. But you think about the Bathsheba account it says that Joab and his men were off at war. That took place before David wrote this. And that whole event would have been included in David's statement. And David can write these words because and only because he had a clear sense of the Lord's forgiveness. He, he dealt with the consequences the rest of his life. Those didn't go away. Only the guilt of his sin went away. Uh, in 2 Samuel 12, listen to the word of God and what Nathan says. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin or removed your sin or forgiven your sin. And so David has the assurance of the forgiveness of his sins even uh, with the sin, all the sins and in, 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 um, uh, adjoining sins connecting, connected to that, that horrible event. And I think that perhaps we ought to pause here and recognize and be encouraged that if God for, could forgive David and say this to David about all the things that took place with Bathsheba, then I think you should be encouraged and know that God can also forgive anything you have ever done. Only he's put them away through Jesus Christ in his payment for sin on the cross. You might think, oh, oh, but I did this. And 
I would simply encourage you to say, really, is it, is it, is it any different than what David did or, or worse than what David did? And you think you top David? And God can put away that soon through Christ. And I don't know if maybe you're here this morning and you're still holding on to the guilt of something. You've never uh, asked Christ to cleanse you from your sin. You've never relied and come to put your trust in His atoning death on the cross and, and to make you His child. That stands open today. The invitation exists. Today is the day. If you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. You can be cleansed of your guilt from sin this morning if you'll simply turn away from it. Put, turn your back on it and trust in, in Christ, in His death, and in that alone. There's no way your works can remove that. Do you think anything you can do can remove the guilt of sin before a, a holy God? It's Christ that does that who cleanses us. And so it's quite a bold declaration, but you and I can say the same thing. Is because we've been faithful. We've been faithful to, to the Word, and we've been faithful uh, to confess sin as David did, and, and we can be cleansed from our sin. So because of his weakness and, and the Lord's delight in him and David's faithfulness, this is his declaration of why God rescued him. And these are why he's worthy to be praised. These are why, why this rock is worthy of our adoration and our worship. And David explains here in the first half of Psalm 18, uh, through his delight, the Lord is worthy of praise because of all that he is for us, our rock, our masada, our strength. We, we see secondly that the Lord is worthy to be praised for his deliverance. The way he supernaturally intervenes to rescue us. Maybe not identical to the way he delivered David, but, but obviously uh, deliverance came from him and, and, and to him who holds us in his grip. And thirdly, for his uh, declaration, because in our great weakness... And because in our enemy's great strength, the Lord will rescue us from the waters that threaten to drown us. My friend, have you trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord? And I've alluded to that already. I'd love to talk to you about that if you've not or don't know. Friend, have you made God your rock? Have you made Jesus Christ your rock? What is it that delights you? Is it the thought that Christ has cleansed you from everything you've ever done? Or is it UGA football? No offense. My daughter's a dog, so. <laughs> Father, Father God, we need this psalm so desperately. David says so many remarkable things. His adoration for you just pouring off the page. And Christ Jesus, give us the same adoration for yourself and for the Father through your indwelling spirit. 
Oh God, let us see your deliverance and pay attention and notice it when it occurs. And fathers, we're so grateful that, that you overcome our weakness and you deliver us and you rescue us and, and, and you delight to do this for us. I pray that you'd help us to remain faithful as we follow you and seek your deliverance from trouble. Savior, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.